Uh, there's already a bit yellow blood in my in my veins. Already had a crazy 18 months here, but it just keeps on uh, keeps on going. Welcome to All in Yellow, the official Norwich City podcast. Tukey! Sensational! Who else? Hello and welcome to the latest episode of All in Yellow, the official Norwich City podcast. This week's guest is a city legend turned pundit and presenter. It is, of course, the one and only Darren Eady. Darren made the first of his 200 Norwich appearances during the historic UEFA Cup run before being sold to Leicester City. After injury forced him into retirement, he returned to live in Norfolk and nowadays fronts up the club's online matchday show, NR1 Live. He certainly does and we'll be chatting to Darren about his playing days, life after football and his long-running association with the Canaries, of course. And if you're enjoying the All in Yellow series so far, do remember to share it with fellow Norwich City fans as we have some great guests lined up in the coming weeks. Well then, time to crack on. We hope you enjoy our chat with this week's guest, Darren Eden. Darren, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm very well. I feel very privileged to have been asked to uh, be on one of your episodes. I've, I've watched them all and uh, been thoroughly enjoyable. So, no, I feel very privileged to be part of it. Thanks for asking. No, pleasure to have you. And as you say, you're, you're actually used to being behind the mic at the minute, aren't you, with NR1 Live, asking the questions. How did that all come about? Um, well, I've, I've worked with the club for, for many years in terms of hosting stuff since I finished playing. And... Like yourself, I've worked in media for, for quite a while with Sky and TalkSport and, and BBC and ITV and various things and uh, got approached by the club uh, to to host their, their sort of TV channel match days and it was a, it was a no-brainer for me, you know, it's talking football. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's my job I did before, so it's a very easy fit. Um, but I've loved it, I've really loved it. It's given me the opportunity to get back involved with the football club um, on a more regular basis. Um, you know, as I said, it's talking about the football, it's, it's meeting up with lots of ex-players and current players that I've played with and, and stuff. So it's been great to, to kind of do that and, and, and just build relationships with people again and have a, a general chat. And, and as like, just like this is really, I, I don't try to think about it too much in terms of when we, we get our guests on. I think it's, it's nice when it comes quite naturally and, and that kind of chemistry and conversation flows pretty simple. And I think when you're talking football, people are willing to open up and... Uh, you know, I hope I do a, a decent enough job at getting people to do that. It's been, it's been great fun and, and, and what a season to be part of it as well. As much as we had, you know, the relegation last season from the Premier League, it's great to be part of such a successful season so far. Touch wood, this season, everything's going fantastic. Yeah, Darren, it's, uh, it's a really enjoyable watch on a match day. I love tuning in. I think you do a fantastic job. You and Rob, of course. But uh, just let people watching know exactly what goes into that show production-wise, because it's not a small operation, is it? No, an awful lot. And I think that's, I think the beauty of it is, is we do make it look like it's put together uh, fairly easily. And, and it's not, you're right. You know, there's, I think we've got three or four cameras. We've got two uh, cameras out, out sort of on the gantry, one in the stands generally. There's, there's a whole uh, production company behind it in terms of working in a, in a big van an OB uh, van outside the ground, putting the show together. Uh, leading up to the show, there's the production side of, of booking guests, um, putting slides together, um, finding stats, you know, all these type of things. You know what's like, Dan, you stepped into my shoes for a week when I couldn't do it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly a skill to learn. Um, but I've, I've said I've loved it, you know, working with an earpiece and having me open the people in the gallery talking in my ear whilst I'm talking to other people. It's a difficult skill to learn, but in terms of the production for the football club, it's been brilliant. And, and the club have been fantastic in backing it because I think, you know, we've already received 
rave reviews from, from national newspapers in terms of what we've put together um, during the COVID times and people not being able to get to the, to the stadium. I think it's been a great outlet for fans to be able to still engage with the football club and the football club to still sort of engage with the fans um, whilst this is all going on. And um, it's been very enjoyable. And I've, I've looked at other clubs, Premier League clubs and their, their TV stations and what they're providing. And, and, and I have to say on match days, it's, it's, it's uncomparable to us. There's no comparison. We're, we're far better. I know I'm going to say that, but, but the production side of it is. Um, I think the quality of the show is, is brilliant. And actually, you can see by the views we get compared to those football clubs, um, we're exceeding Premier League clubs. So, yes, it's been, it's been great. But, yeah, there's an awful lot that goes into it. But I think the club does it very, very well. Yeah, and you can tell that you really enjoy it as well. You make it look easy. It's a great watch. But you've also been working recently on the War Paint Challenging Stereotype series. I know you had um, Amal Fashnu and Stephen Fry, kind of like stories that are untold, really. How much of an eye-opener has that been? Yeah, a huge amount. I mean, the, the first one we did, I mean, I met War Paint um, last year and was asked to get involved by Norwich again to, to kind of help um, work with them in their partnership with Norwich and... and uh, and I met Danny Gray, who's the founder and the owner of the brand, and um, got them instantly. Um, a very charismatic guy, a very handsome guy, and he, and he suffers with body dysmorphia. And you look at the man and you think, well, how? But that, that to me, was, was um, the whole reason behind it, was because it kind of engaged me, and why is he feeling like that? You know, and this is the, the mental health side that we've talked about before many times, you know, just because you perceive he's a, he's a good-looking guy and he seems like he's got it all together, he has his own issues, I think. Um, being involved with that and, and again the football club being at the forefront of these types of um, challenging these stereotypes the, the football club again is, is massively in front of other clubs in terms of I think their engagement with, with brands and different types of brands outside of the norm of football so it's been really an eye-opener I mean to, to, to get Stephen Fry on the first one we did was was unbelievable I know you guys did a podcast with him as well but amazing, you know, they, isn't he? yeah they say you shouldn't meet your heroes but he's always been one of mine I was a massive fan of Blackadder when I was younger and, and QI was like one of my favorite shows ever and you know I was I was I was really quite nervous about meeting him but he's just a you know obviously been a big Norwich fan it was, a, it was an easy introduction for me but He's a very charismatic, open guy, and um, it was just a brilliant interview. And I have to say, he was, he was, he was outstanding on the day. And, and uh, you know, I know he has his issues, and uh, he was very complimentary about me. I, I, I'm, I'm still good to need to get um, uh, one of the lads to, to cut the piece for me because uh, during it, he said about how I was charismatic, intelligent, intellectual, um, articulate. So I'm still to get that bit yet. Yeah, I'm going to use it as my screenshot. So he didn't say that about me. <laughs> I'm sure he did, but you know, it's, it's just a surprise when you've got someone like that who you're kind of in awe of. And I was with Stephen Fry, you know, I don't, I don't get starstruck by anybody, but, but with him, he's, he's this, um, just his, his presence and what he does and, and how he talks and the things he gets involved with. Uh, he's a, I'm a big fan of his and, and to be part of that for, to, for Norwich City and get the opportunity to challenge those stereotypes of, around mental health with the club um, and people like that was just a brilliant thing to be part of. You guys are rubbing it in. I missed the podcast with Stephen Fry and I still regret it. I still regret it. I have met him once and it was, as you said, pretty awesome. Yeah. What sort of reception have you had, Darren, for, those, for that series? Uh, have you had anyone contact you and said, actually, yeah, you know what, talking about that and listening to you has really helped me? Do you know what? An amazing amount. And that's the, the thing what's um, not, not surprised me. It hasn't surprised me almost. I think it's been... Danny's had the same, you know, within, within the release of the, the first one with Stephen Fry, I had people, and I, and I do on a regular basis, messaging me on, on, you know, on DMs and through Twitter and social media for Instagram, um, 
not asking for advice, but just kind of sharing their, their stories. And I think for them, it's helped be able to do that. You know, I'm, I'm not a professional. I don't profess to be. You know, I, I, what, I, what I say is I can give you um, an idea of my own experiences and, and that can help you um, to understand that you're not alone. And I think that's been a massive help for people just to be able to reach out and kind of not feel alone in, in these times. And, and especially everything that's been going on with COVID as well. It's been a it's been a real kind of difficult time for everybody for, for various reasons. So the fact that people can reach out to myself and Danny is, is, is nice, but I do feel an air of responsibility at times as well, because, you know, I know how I felt and, and I know how those people are probably feeling. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's making sure for me, it's just about listening and kind of giving my side of my story and, and telling them that, that I had similar feelings, different type of triggers, but similar types of feelings. And I think that's, that's all they want to hear. You know, if they, they need to get some professional help, they can go and get that. But I think initially that, that first point of contact is, is what people need. You know, I was the same. I didn't want to go and speak to a, to a professional or a psychiatrist because I felt I was being judged. I just wanted someone to sit down, listen to me and understand that, am I feeling normal? Is this normal? And, and to hear those words, first of all, was, was, a, was a great relief to me. And I'm sure hopefully that's, that's what I give to others as well. Yeah, and that's that kind of conversation is more important now than ever. I mean, it's been a year now where we're all effectively just in our homes and those thoughts do come into play and talking about it is just so key, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. And, and, and as I say, it's not about um, giving advice. It's not about judging people. It's just sitting and listening because once you share something like that, I think it just feels everybody I've spoken to just, just believes it's a massive weight off, you know, just a massive, well, almost like putting a, you know, letting the air out of a, of a lilo or something like that, just that release of that pressure. Um, and then you can start building blocks from there, but it's taking that initial first step, which is sometimes the hardest, but the longer you leave it, the more difficult it gets. So the more people can open up quicker and, and, and you know, the sooner they can, then, then the better. But it's been, it's been an eye-opener for me because when I was had those, those issues, I, was, I thought I was alone. I thought I was struggling and I couldn't speak out and talk to people. And the amount of people that I knew myself personally in terms of friends, family then opened up to me and said they'd suffered in the past and, and it was just it was just huge and I, I was shocked to find out just how many people I think have these issues throughout their times and periods of their lives and, and for me I don't look at it as a as a weakness I take massive strength from it I'm a completely different person now to I was five ten fifteen years ago through those experiences I think I think the negative experiences you have in your life probably make more difference to you than the positive ones you have I think for me, it certainly has. It makes, makes me more empathic. Um, you know, I think being a footballer and trying to put the comparison of the two together, when you're going through your career, you become, can become quite selfish. You have to be to succeed. You have to be driven and selfish. And I think you're very focused on your football career and what you want to do. But then once you come out of that, um, you realise life's not like that. And you need to kind of find your inner self and, I, and, I, and I, it took me a lot of years I think to, to find that um, but I, I like to think now I'm, a, I'm certainly a better person than I was many years ago and as I said I think those those bad experiences are the ones that have experienced it sort of shaped me the most and, and made me the person I am today which I'm, which I'm kind of thankful for it certainly makes me stronger not weaker that's interesting Darren you talk about your transformation over a, a period of time five ten years when I met you I say when I met you when I met you as an adult not when you came to my school to give me a certificate when I, when I met you <laughs> taller than me though weren't you I, bet you I probably was taller than you then yeah yeah um, when you when I met you uh, when I started working at the club now well, 10 years ago but I think you came along eight years eight years ago you came along and talked about something you were setting up for celebrity football matches and perhaps working with the foundation to help raise funds 
you've done a lot of that and you've helped a lot of charities. Just talk us through uh, some of that and especially when you came to Norwich to set up those games. Again, when I finished, it was kind of, for me, it was finding a, another identity. That's, that's been the, probably the biggest struggle since finishing football. Um, I finished at 28. I, I thought my career was going to go on to at least 35. So when 28 came along and I was retiring, I, I didn't really know what to do. And that, and that was the beginning of my problem. So I was kind of reaching out just to finding what, what I can do in life. And um, the charity element came along and, and I had a, quite a few, obviously, friends in terms of football and, and, and a few celebrity friends. So decided to put these these football charity matches together. You know, I knew football, I knew celebrities. It's an easy thing for me to do. And um, and it took off quite quickly. Um, the celebrities love playing football. They love playing on, on decent football stadiums. Uh, and the fact that, again, I spoke to Norwich quite early and, and engaged with the football club. And again, Norwich being the, the forward-thinking club they were, it was it was an easy sell, really, to, to, to raise the money for the Community Sports Foundation as we did, um, playing charity football matches. And... You know, I think we had four or five great years at it and, and we've raised, t- you know, tens of thousands of pounds, probably into hundreds of thousands, I think, for, for the CSF in terms of over the, the entire period. So I think celebrities now, celebrity soccer has now raised over two million. So, you know, we're, we're going strong. Um, we've got more games booked up uh, for this summer as well. So look, it's, been, it's been brilliant. It's been, it's, been a, it's been a release. I think it's always nice to, to give back where you can um, and the fact that you can go to such football clubs as Norwich and we, you know, we've done Everton uh, with Crystal Palace you know, we've, done, we've done lots of big football clubs and when you're engaging and working with their charities it's a lot easier than going to them and saying can we hire the pitch and, and that way so you know the effort's there the club put the effort in because you're raising the money for the charity but also we're there to provide those celebrities that want to come along and, and play football for nothing and on a, on a Premier League stadium and, and, and that's what they love so um, it's been great and, and it's going from strength to strength. So, yeah, something we, we, we certainly want to continue. There were a couple of highlights in there for me that I always look back on. What you can talk about. Well, yeah, ones that I can talk about because yeah. I think the crowd saw it, so it's okay. Um, yeah, the highlights of Jamie's game one where Darren Huckabee's team were winning heavily at half time, and then you had a conversation with him about trying to balance it up a little bit and he wasn't that keen. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. He didn't want to swap sides. He was, he, I think he just wanted to annihilate the opposition like he normally does. So, um, but we managed to talk him around. And it, it's quite good, you know. I think the games ended up being 15-14 in the score or something like that. So, you know, as much as you want, it's, it's, it's strange because as players, as ex-players, when we engage in it, we, we take it a bit more fun-like and we want that kind of high scoring. But actually, the celebrities are really quite competitive and they take it seriously. So when you try and manoeuvre things to make it more interesting and entertaining for the crowd I don't think they like it very much you know they, they kind of want to win and they want to do it properly so um, well that very- was proved by the fact that Jamie Abbott came on scored his customary penalty to to tie the game in the most recent one and then James Argent from Towie took matters into his own hands and uh, notched a winner at the other end I think yeah well it was well, it, that was the old point and it was like even the, even the penalty we, we earned to, to get Jamie to be able to take, it was like we knew we had to try and manufacture it somehow. But everybody in the, in the team that it was going against was reluctant to actually give the penalty away. They didn't want to do it. So it's like, someone's got to do it. We can't, you know, you can't just die. We're going to have to get someone to foul someone. They're like, oh, we have to. So, but look, it was, it was a, a massive occasion. And Jamie, you know, an iconic figure at Norwich. And, and um, it's, it, it was really special times as well, I think. It was a... It was a time when um, the football club was was doing lots of work, and the CSF's a brilliant foundation and, and raises huge amounts of money for the, for the community and do fantastic work. So, 
to be able to be part of that and, and raise money for them by playing football and having a good night out with the celebs the night before was, was, was a bonus. And, and as players, obviously, you never lose that competitive edge. But I just want to take you back to your early playing careers for Norwich. Now, what was it like coming through the academy back in the early 90s? Great. I mean, probably very different to what it is now. Um, I came through the era which was Trous and then moved on to, to Colney. So Trous was a very different era. Um, Keith Webb was my youth team manager at the time. And I, and I know Keith Webb really well. And I know Keith now works with the FA and is, a, is an FA coach and educator. So he teaches coaching. He was very different back in the day. His, his manner now compared to what he was then is very different. Um, you know, he's, he's very technical now and he's very, uh, I guess, aware of, of taking care of the boys and making sure things are done right. Back in the day, he was a bit more, how can you put it, he was a bit more in your face. He was, he was quite aggressive. He was quite hard on us. Um, but that worked. You know, we had a, people, a lot of people talk about the Man United side in 92, 93, the academy that brought through all those, those fantastic players. We had a similar thing at our level. You know, there's myself, Jenny Kieran, Adi Akinbae, um, Andy Marshall, uh, Andy Johnson. You know, there was, there was probably seven or eight of us that went on to have pro careers out of that youth team. So as much as people say there's a right and a wrong way of doing things, you know, it worked for us. And, and Norwich has always had a rich history of doing that, of, of producing young players. And that was the reason I joined the club in the first place. Why I moved from the West Country at 16 to Norfolk was because the club had a history of producing young players into the first team and that was something like it was a conscious decision for me to do because I saw a pathway. Do you ever get jealous Darren now you t uh, we had Neil Adams on uh, in one of the early podcasts and he talked about Trouse and, the, and then the original Colney and, and what it used to look like do you get a bit jealous now when you see what the training ground looks like do you wish you'd perhaps played football in this era? Um, I get I, I, in terms of in terms of facilities, I guess the facilities are unbelievable and must provided for the boys. But you know, I loved my time in the youth team at Norwich and, and Gordon Bennett. You know, uh, rest in peace, Gordon. You know, he's, he was, was a big part of, of the club as well, and Sammy Morgan as well. I loved that era. And it, it worked for me because I became a pro and I, I got into the Norwich first team at eighteen. So I wouldn't say I prefer the way it is now compared to what I had. You know, I, I was I was successful the way. I managed it. Who would have known if I was in it now? Would I have, would have had the career I had? So, I don't know. I, I loved my time uh, at Norwich and the youth team. I think we had, it was a very different time. Um, the, the boys were very different. The group were, were really together. Um, we probably got a lot away with a lot more than we would have nowadays um, in terms of a youth team. Um, but, again, that, that worked for us. So, In what uh, way, Darren? What would, you, what would you have got away with then that you wouldn't now? Nights out. I mean, for instance, when we shouldn't have been, uh, but even, even as, even as, you know, you don't want to come down, but it's, you know, 16, 17 year old lads, as they do, they, they want to go out. And, and we used to go out as a group. And I remember one particular, I think it was, I think it was New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve, we were out. And we was in, I think it was Gundry White or something, which was in Norwich at this bar at the time. And we're all, there's quite a few of us in there. There must've been nine or 10 of us in there. We probably should have been in there really. Well, we shouldn't have been, it was legal. We were underage, but we did. Um, <laughs> And so we're all, we're all kind of messing about on the dance floor and having a few drinks and stuff. And we look into the distance above over, over the heads of people. And you can see right down where the bar was. You can see right through to where the entrance was. And, and as we looked sort of down there, in walks Keith Webb. But we didn't know. At the time. We obviously knew Keith was in there. He didn't obviously know we were in there. He wasn't looking for us. He was just on a night out as well. So we had to then kind of pretend we weren't there. So we all started ducking down on the dance floor, trying to look out the way. And everybody started to copy us like we were doing some kind of stupid dance. 
So we had to then kind of just manoeuvre ourselves and shuffle ourselves out of the way. And I, th I think we got away with it. I think we did. So, um, yeah, we managed to kind of get out of the place. And, but that, that, was, that was what we did, you know. That, that was the way we did. We didn't, we didn't sneak around, but we were, we were young lads that, that were out kind of exploring. And, and I think probably the football club knew that to a certain extent and, and let that happen um, because they knew we were, we were young lads and we were, you know, you had to find your feet. You had to be still be young lads and, and enjoy yourselves. And I think... Um, the club maybe turned a little bit of a blind eye at times, but uh, you know, as I say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, it was it was bonding, and that's what it was all about, and that's why we had the camaraderie we did, and that's why we had the success we did, and that's why we produced so many players that era because we had that way of doing things. Um, so, say that I, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong way, but it, but it certainly suited us back then. Uh, is it safe to say, Darren, it's probably a good thing there wasn't social media uh, yes. in those days? And who who would have been the biggest offenders on social media from your crop of players? The whole lot, all of them. I mean, the, the obvious one would be, would be was Jamie Curran because Jamie, Jamie was. I grew up with Jamie as a kid. You know, we come through the ranks down at Southampton together. Uh, we joined Norwich together at the same time. We 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 were in digs together. Me and Jamie. Um, we we Jamie bought a house next door to mine when I bought my first house. He lived next door. J Jamie was the most natural goal scorer I've ever played with in terms of finishing. Just an unbelievable finishing. We could see that from his his. I think he scored some like ninety odd goals in two seasons in the youth team. He was just phenomenal. But Jamie left the night out. Jamie, Jamie left to burn the candle at both ends. I think, I would like to think that like I kind of reined him in just a little bit. He probably turned me a little bit wild at times and I, and I reined him in. So we were a good balance for each other. But Jamie was, and Jamie admits it now, you know, Jamie's had gone and had a, a long career, longer than any of us those of that era. But, but I, I think he does probably have some regrets in those early years where his career was going compared to, you know, it was, it was, it was right up there. You know, he's playing the Premier League and all of a sudden he did probably burn the candle at both ends and, and his career fell away before he then came up again. So, you know, he doesn't, I don't think he has any regrets, but I, I, certainly, I think he probably certainly looks back on it and thinks he could have done things differently. But, but that was Jamie and that, that's why we got on so well. Were there ever sort of hangovers in training then? Um, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah. not? Okay, you can a bit now. <laughs> Do you know what? I could tell you so many stories. I, I remember what, and this is, this is the honest truth and I, and I feel terrible for telling this story. <laughs> Because I was a pro at the time, so Mike Walker was a manager, and um, I think we were playing. I don't know if it's Boxing Day or something. But I went to a, a family's christening the day before, and we used to get these gatherings quite a lot. And the families I was involved with at the time were were it's a big family, so everybody would get together on these occasions. And um, my uncle, or well, the, the uncle, the chap who's who Stephen, his name was a great guy um, who passed away actually sadly many years ago. But um, he he. He used to brew his own scrumpy. So he had this scrumpy that he made in this cask. And when you got there, there was this big, huge thing. And I've been a West Country boy. Cider was my thing. So I'll have a bit of that. I'll have a couple of glasses of that. But we don't realise scrumpy gets you drunk from the legs up. You don't realise you're drunk until you try and stand up. <laughs> and um, you can tell how strong it was because literally you had to release the valve at the top and this big hissing sound come out of this thing. And I thought I'd just have a couple of drinks. We had a game the next day. I thought, you know, socially, just have a couple of drinks. Within a few, I was gone. Absolutely gone. And I remember... Um, leaving that evening and I, was, I was, wasn't in great shape and I knew I had a game the next day and um, you know it wasn't intentional so I got home and, and I think I was, I was probably having a bit of a disagreement with the, with the wife at the time and uh, we had a bit of, a, bit of a, an argument not massive one I thought right that's it I'm not going home I'm gonna, I'm gonna. so when we got home we lived in a place where there was a park and there was a bench on the park I'm going to go and sit on the park bench for, for 10 minutes and just chill out and, and calm myself down and get myself together so I went to the park bench, 
fell asleep and then woke up the next morning when I had the game. Literally, I had about two hours to get to the game and I woke up on a park bench. So I went straight from there home, quickly got changed, went straight to the game and I scored the next day. So I must have done all right. So I was going to say, you were going to say you had a worldie, weren't you? Yes, it wasn't all bad, but I think I, was, I must have been just my concentration level must have been at their peak because obviously I'd, I'd you know, I felt fine the next day, but I knew what I'd, I'd done and I, and, I, and I kind of, you know, regretted that, but, you know, you live and learn. I was a young lad at the time, and, uh, yeah. But I scored, as I say, I don't think anyone noticed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and no one's ever known. Do you think it would have been more dangerous? I guess in those days, Darren, I'm sure footballers were paid okay, but it was nothing like the wages of today's footballer. How dangerous would you lot have been earning 30, 40 grand a week? Well, I think it's... Um, it depends who you've got around you, your friends and your family, how you manage that. I think it would be difficult, but I think that's probably why a lot of the players now are um, a bit more kind of guarded and, and, and shield themselves away from that. For those exact reasons, there are still some that lose their heads. Um, yeah, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's all about the people you've got around you and, and your personality yourself. I think, you know, Jamie Curran would have been a rogue if he was on 40 grand a week or 40 pound a week. It didn't matter, you know. Um, so... I think it sits down to the personalities of the individuals more more so than the finances, but it but it certainly makes things a lot easier. But actually, sometimes you know the more money you've got, the, 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 I guess the more experiences you'll go and perhaps go on a yacht somewhere, you know, rather than going out to bars all the time. So there's different ways I think of managing. I think it, yeah, I think it's down to the personalities rather than the amount of money. But again, as like I said, it's about getting those right people around you to be able to manage it manage it best. Look, another another quick another story for you. I've told, I think I might have told this one before a few places, but when I first broke into the sort of first team squad, and this again was the kind of era of, of going out and drinking culture and, and lads were together. And this was the era of, I mean, this is when we were just about to get into Europe. So, you know, that, that era, early 90s. And I was in the youth team and I just sort of broke into the first team squad. And I remember the kind of iconic lads at the time was Tim Sherwood, uh, Lee Power, you know, all these lads were kind of first team players, Royal Fox. And I was just breaking into the squad and they had a night out and they said, wouldn't some of the younger boys come? So we're like, yeah, we'll come out. You know, we want to get out. And, but that was, again, was a, showed quite early on how those older players involved us in the football club and wanted us to be part of it, which then took us under their wing, which, you know, because it made it easier to step into that arena. Um, and I remember going out and, and having a night out. And by the end of the night, Tim Sherwood lived, lived in Norwich somewhere and, he, and he's gone, well, why don't you just go back to mine for a party? Like, yeah, right. There's about 50 of us. So he said, well, just get a load of taxis back. So we all jumped in these taxis. There was, there was blokes, women, all jumped in these taxis back to his for a party. And uh, we pulled up to his house. Taxis off they go. We'll get out. Tim's gone. And Tim starts, he's like, he's checking his pockets. He's like, I've lost my keys. I can't, I can't get in my house. So we all stood there thinking, how are we going to, we, what are going to do now? The taxis are gone. So we're going to have to do the cool cabs to go back into the team. He's gone, that's fine. See, look, there's a window open on the top. Who's the smallest one? So up I go, I'm, I'm the one. So they get me to climb in this little tiny window. Fortunately, at the time, I could, I could just about kind of fit through it. So you'll have to do it down. You're the one who can get through. So up I go, shimmy through the window, jump down, jump sort of skimmy for nothing, making all this noise, banging around trying to get in. It was a heck of a squeeze to try and get in. Drop down the other side, look out the window. There's no one there. I could just see a bush with these heads just popping up. On come the lights in the house. That's not his house. It's <laughs> not his house. <laughs> So you can imagine, I hear the dog barking. It's like, what am I going to do? So I had to manage to kind of scramble back out through the window as quick as I could and just peg it off as they're all, you know, laughing their heads off behind this bush as I'm climbing back out the window. But that was the type of stuff that they found funny. 
but, but in terms of what we did, that, that kind of broke me into the squad, I guess, and, and kind of made me part of, of what they did. So, yeah, it's um, funny times, but looking back on it now, I guess those things would, would probably not happen that often. That's amazing. And you just touched on it there, but you were so young when you first broke into the squad. I mean, when I was doing my research on dates and your debut, etc., I was thinking, he can't be old enough. But you were, were you 18 when you were playing in Europe? I mean, that was pretty much unheard of, especially with Norwich and your debut coming against um, Vitus Arnhem in the UEFA Cup. You were so young. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was, I was very lucky. I, I didn't expect it. I've been involved in the first team squad a few times. Um, I think I'm still the youngest Premier League debutant at 18 for the, for the club, which is something which I'm, I'm kind of very proud of. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was again, it, was, it showed that Mike Walker had faith in us youngsters, you know, in the biggest game in the club's history, uh, Vitas Arnhem, to, to basically call me into the office and just say, you're involved in the squad there and for, for the week. And, and I thought, oh, brilliant, you know, that's, didn't really think too much of it. And then I'm not going to get on, am I? I'm sure I ain't going to get on. I'm just going to sit on the bench, you know. They, they don't put youngsters on games like this. 20 minutes to go, get the curly finger from Mike Walker and says, you're going on. So it was, um, yeah, I didn't expect it, but it all kind of happened quite quickly. And then I made my Premier League debut the following the, the Saturday following that game against QPR and scored on the Premier League debut. And then obviously we went on to play Bayern Munich and, and, and I played the home leg. I was on the bench away from home and on the home leg, I, I started the game centre forward with Chris Sutton. And I was, I was a winger, I was a left winger, and I played out on the left. So the fact that it showed Mike Walker had confidence in me to put me as a centre-forward to Chris Sutton in the biggest game in the club's history was, I think, testament to the group of lads that we had, but also the manager giving faith in youngsters, very much like Daniel Farker does now. You know, he wasn't afraid to put us in if he felt we could do a job, and that was, that was amazing. And, and, and to, to be stood, you know, I remember it vividly, standing in the tunnel, Cow Road, against Bayern Munich, and looking to my, I was looking to my right, I think it was, and it's Lothar Mateus, who was obviously the, just won the World Cup with his captain with Germany a couple of years before, who was standing next to me. So it was all very bizarre, but I didn't, I didn't really think too much of it. Because when you, you have no expectations when you're 18, you think it's going to be like that every week. You know, you, you, it's when you get older, you kind of then think a little bit more about it. But uh, as a young 18-year-old, I just couldn't wait to get out there and, and play football. But it was all a, a, little bit, a little bit bizarre and came around quite quickly. But yeah, it's of this because I've got a copy of this was from your debut against Vitesse. Oh, was it? Well, how, I I'll probably have somewhere. My, my son's got all my memory. I don't keep anything, so my son's got it all. My son Taylor has all my shirts and, and, and programs and, and paper cuttings that people used to keep for me. I keep them all, but they're all in a box somewhere. My son has them, but yeah, it was um, yeah, special times to be involved in that, that European run as we did. Um, you know, we hoped it would be there'd be lots more of that, but the club's been sort of up and down in, in years and it's much more difficult to break into that now um, but to be part of that and I know there's kind of comparisons of teams now and, and, and then and, and drawing the comparisons but that, that team that squad we had then was was phenomenal it was it was brilliant it had no immediate kind of outstanding stars in it but just as a squad together and the team spirit and the togetherness they, they were a top bunch and you would do really really well to, to be that one there. It, it was like an amazing time. I was I was at school. Alice probably can't remember that one. I would suggest she's probably had to too young for that. A little bit too. Probably <laughs> had to ask Dad. Ask Dad. He would know. He would know. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing time. And you talked about that squad togetherness. How much fun was it getting back on a football pitch with those guys uh, when Inter Inter Forever came to town a couple of years ago? Oh, look, brilliant, mate. Again, another one of those days where they're, they're raising money for the Community Sports Foundation again, and to have that. Um, 
kind of recreation of that game. I missed the, the, the Italian leg. I was on the bench at home um, and away. I actually had a temperature the night before the game. I was supposed to, supposed to play, but I got a temperature and I was, I was locked up in bed out away from everybody else. So Jamie Curran took, took my place on the bench. Um, it wasn't the cider. No, not this time it wasn't. Perhaps I should have had some. That might sort me out. I'd have been fine if it was that. Um, but, it, you know, so, yeah, it, it, look, it was a brilliant occasion to have them back at Cower Road. Oh, it was brilliant for about the first 10 minutes until I got smashed by one of their players and then he broke my leg. So then I got, it got a bit angry and a bit competitive after that. It started off quite friendly, as it does. It's kind of generally, you know, you're kind of knocking the ball about. But then when that happened, you could see there was a turn in, in our thoughts. And, you know, when you're playing against players like Zanetti and Matarat, you, you've got these players who you think are going to be feisty anyway. So we had to step up and um, it did become really quite competitive in the end. And it's, uh, you know, it wasn't just a friendly match as much as it was. It was, it was quite competitive and I think um, a, a great occasion to be able to, to get out there. Um, and you can still some of the boys, you know, as much as they're, they're older, they, they've, still got, they've still got it. And Dan will know that from, and you'll know that, Alice, from, from watching the games, the, the charity things we play. And when you play against us sometimes, you know, people think it's, it's still easy, but it's, it's the knowledge they have in the brain to be able to get in the right place at the right time that, that sets us apart still. The legs are gone, but the mind is still there. No, no, definitely. I'm sure the legs haven't gone, but yeah. I want to come on to um, your move to Leicester now, because you were the club record signing, weren't you? But I remember reading that you actually didn't really want to leave Norwich at the time, but the financial situation meant that the club couldn't say no to the offer. How did you feel about moving? I didn't want to move. I was, I was really happy at Norwich. I was enjoying my football. Um, I just signed a new contract probably a year before with Bruce Rioch was there. Um, so I was on good money. You know, I was on Premier League money in, in the Championship. Um, but the club felt I wanted that and, and, and I felt I earned that. So I, I was financially, I was, I was very happy. I loved my football, loved the area, living here. I'd, I'd, my son was born here. Um, so we were, we were very settled. Um, but when the club is, was going through the period it was, and I think Delia had just taken over at the time. Um, and again, it was, it was all a massive surprise to me. I was called into the office by Bruce Rioch sat down and he said, we've accepted an offer from Leicester, you're free to go and talk to them. And I, my first reaction was, well, I, I, ain't gonna go and talk, I don't want to go and talk to them, I'm, I'm not interested. And he basically said, well, if you don't, the club will go into administration. It's that bad. They needed the finances to be able to, to help the club to continue and not do that. So, you know, what choice did I have? You know, of course, I wanted to get back to the Premier League and play there again. Um, wanted to do that with Norwich. And if it wasn't going to be with Norwich, where would I go? And logistically, Funnily enough, the, the, the closest club to Norwich Premier League at the time was Leicester. So and Martin O'Neill would have gone there and, and he was the one who wanted to buy me. So I had, had connections with Martin as well. So, you know, I didn't want to move, but I, I suppose the move felt right um, for, for those reasons. And, and uh, I never regretted it. My dad was a Leicester fan. He was born and bred in Leicester. So that made it a bit easier as well. But I, but I never wanted to leave. I never wanted to leave. Do you think Norwich fans understood at the time why you had to leave? Did, was it quite public that you didn't want yeah. to? I think so. I mean, I've spoken a lot about it since, but I think they did. I, I, you know, I think people were well aware of the, the financial plight the club was in. And, um, you know, Delia's, Delia's unbelievably, you know, she's such a fantastic woman. And Michael as well, just, just great people. And, you know, I remember Delia, when I left, she sent me a postcard. So anybody could have read it. Sent me a postcard with a picture, drew a picture on it, somebody crying, saying, oh, you know, wish you all the very best for the future and keep in touch and we're going to miss you and all that. So just a wonderful woman. Um, she made my wedding cake. So we've, 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 got, we've got a lot of history. But you know, it's just, I, I understood and I felt if I was going to move, that that was the right thing to do to help the football club as well. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a difficult time. 
but but it's one I think I had no choice in doing in the end. Um, otherwise, the alternative was was unthinkable. And did you always know that you would end up coming back to Norwich? Obviously, your career ended way sooner than you had of hoped, which we'll come on to in a minute. But was Norwich kind of always your home in your head then? Yeah, I, I love the place. You know, it's a great place to, to live and bring a family up. And, and I think when you've had success somewhere, you generally migrate back to there anyway. And um, I like to think I had a, a good time at Norwich. Um, say my kids were born here. I, I married a Norfolk girl. Um, so I was always going to come back, always going to come back. It was, uh, it was something that was always on my mind. And yeah, it's my home. I moved up when I was 16. So I've spent more years here than I have anywhere else so it was, it was a no-brainer for me to come back it was just a matter of when that was going to be. Did you while you were playing at Leicester did you live still in, in Norfolk and commute what what stage was the family at then did, were the kids around at that point? I had my son at the time um, we, we still had our house here we, we moved to Leicester we moved lock stock and barrel we sold the house up moved up there I wanted to do it properly we came back every we had family here so we came back every weekend virtually after every game I was driving back um, so we spent a lot of time back here anyway. I was obviously then lived in, in Leicester in terms of Monday to Friday training. But if we were obviously playing away, we wouldn't, but generally we were home games. And when we had weeks off or, or days off, we'd pop back to Norfolk. It was only an you know, hour and 45 minutes, so, so no biggie really. Um, so yeah, it was, it's, just, it's just a great place to live. And you know, that's why there's so many of us ex-pros residing around here, because we, we kind of, we know the benefits of being here. Yeah, it really is. So, so you obviously moved to Leicester. At what point did your knee really start to become an issue? Because obviously you had had injuries before. Am I right in thinking it was sort of 26 operations in the end that you had on your knee? How did, how, when did you know, basically, how big it was? Um, the, literally the day I woke up from the operation told my career was over. I think that was the, the defining time. I, up until that point, I'd always got back from operation. I always felt I'd be okay. As I said, I'd always had little operations in my time at Norwich. I moved to Leicester and... and you know, the, the one good thing about moving to Leicester was when I when I joined Martin O'Neill was you know a big fan of mine and I was a big fan of his as a manager and um, I remember doing my medical and having all the tests and, and having a scan and all that and I remember the surgeon saying to, to Martin at the time you know he has had issues with his knee um, you need to make you aware of that but he says there's no reason why he can't go on and have a long prosperous career or you know we don't know it might not be great in a year or two years time it's just one of these things we can't really tell and Martin O'Neill just turned around bluntly and said I don't care I want to sign him so that was it, you know, you made you feel welcome straight away. And I, and I never, after every operation I had, I had always recovered, I'd always got back playing. So even to the point where I went into that, that kind of final operation, I felt there'll always be a result out of it. I'll always get back from it. And I knew it was different from the moment I woke up because normally when you wake up in recovery, you're then taken back to your room. You know, as soon as I woke up in the recovery room, my, my wife was there, uh, our physio was there, um, I think even my agent might have been there at the time. And that, that was unusual. So, I, so as soon as I woke up, I thought someone's not right here. And it was basically told straight away. And the surgeon was in there and just said, look, Darren, we've, we've, we've tried to do all we can, but your career's over. You can't play anymore. So you can try, but you, I guarantee you, you know, you, you, your knee is in no shape to be able to play elite football. And I knew as well, as soon as I came back, I then tried the rehab for a bit. And, and I just knew, I mean, even from that, that, that day, I, I, I struggled to run on it because it hurt so much, but there's no way I could play football. My game was built on sort of speed and twisting and turning. And when my knee was in the shape it was in, I knew pretty, pretty straight away how, how there was no chance of me getting back. Um, but yeah, it was a really difficult one to take because I never believed that would happen. I thought it would be my choice to retire. I suppose 
people struggle sometimes to sympathise with footballers who, who have had an injury like that, who've had their career curtailed, because they think, oh, these guys have had the life of Riley, they're earning big bucks, they're set for life, it's not a problem. The realities of that, of having that structure taken away from you, that, that income, how difficult is that to process for someone? I mean, you're, you're 28, it's, it's not old. How, how tough is it to process that? Yeah, my, my identity as well, that was the biggest thing, because I was, a, I was a Premier League footballer. You know, that's what I was, that's what I did since I've been a kid. So from one day of doing that to literally the next, walking out from a football club, and, and I even took my boots with me. I don't know why I did. I remember, you know, they say you hang your boots up when you retire. I didn't. I took them off the peg and put them in a bag and took them home. Um, and I still, live, I still live out of a wash bag now, like footballers do. I still have a wash bag, which I've got all my, all my stuff in. You know, it's weird. But it was, it, yeah, it's more about my identity. I was a Premier League footballer, and that's all I ever concentrated on. So when I then came out of it, I was like, well, what am I now? And, and, and still to this day, I don't really know. I'm trying to find my way through life. And I think that's what maybe some people do throughout their lives. But for me, it was, it was trying to find an identity of to what I was going to do next. And I think it was, it was the, not the embarrassment, but you, know, you, you didn't want to kind of speak up and ask for help because for those reasons, people would say, well, you, you're a footballer. Well, that, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the triggers are. The, the feelings are still the same. It's like anybody in any walk of life, if you're doing a job and you've done it all your life and then the next day it gets taken away from you, that has a natural effect. And I, I describe it a lot to people because when I finished playing, I didn't, I didn't watch football. I didn't go to the grounds because of the smells, the sounds, everything was just a, too much of a reminder. And I tried to describe to people is that, you know, the biggest passion you have, the thing you love to do the most, if one day you're doing it, the next somebody says to you, you can't do that anymore, but you go and watch your mates doing it. You're like, no, I'm doing that. Why would I want to do that? So very quickly it became, I wouldn't say my enemy, but it became something I, I completely skipped away from because it was too painful to be around. Um, so then when you do that, where do you find your identity? Where, where do you go next? Because, you know, I did okay at school, got my GCSEs, but I can't, you know, I couldn't apply for a job and just go and do that because I didn't have the qualifications to do it. So it, it took me a lot of years to, to kind of work out where my path would take me. Um, but I'd like to feel I'm quite entrepreneurial and I think my, my best skills lead into working for myself and, and being being my own person and doing my own things and setting up my own businesses and all these type of things I've done since then. So, um, yeah, it's difficult, really difficult. And I miss it. I still miss football every single day. I still miss playing. I still miss being around in changing rooms. Um, but you, you learn to live with it. Like any loss in life, it is, it is a loss. It's a grief process. I think you, you miss it and you, you lose it, but you learn to deal with it over a period of time. It's so true what you say there, though, because... You know, even if it wasn't football, anyone that's enjoying the career they're working in, regardless of what they're earning or the benefits that come from that, if anyone at the age of 28 is then told you can't do that job, that must be absolutely heartbreaking. I guess what was different for you as well is that because you were so young, you probably didn't have that time to kind of have a roadmap out of football, what next with the chapter that you would kind of move on to. How, how, did you, how quickly did you have to rethink your life, I guess? Yeah, you're spot on, Alice. It was, it was very much like that. It was I had no time to, to prepare for it, you know, as much as I, as I said, I got back from every other injury that I had. So it was a massive shock to the system. I just didn't know what I was going to do the next day. I literally remember waking up the next day and, and laying in bed thinking, I've not got a bit of training today. What am I going to do? So it was, it was, it was really difficult. Um, and, and, you're, and you're right, being so young, but that's what, you know, trying to explain it to people was, as much as it was my job, and, and that's a difficult enough thing to have taken away from you, it was my love as a kid. You know, you ask, you ask most people, and what would you want to be as a kid? You know, they want to be a footballer. 
you know, I had, I had that, so I loved my job, and I, and I was very lucky to, 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 to do that. You know, not everybody loves their jobs, but even, even if they don't love their job, but then losing that would be a big enough hit to them. But to actually love your job and, and do the thing you've done all your life, passionate about, loved being around the people that were doing it, to have that taken away as well. So it wasn't just the job, it was losing that side of it as well. I lost my life. I lost my friends, I lost my network around me, I lost my support network, because that was all part of it. Football's this kind of football bubble that we all reside in when you're in it, and you're very tight-knit and you're trustworthy. And that was one of the biggest things I had to deal with when I came out of football, was I thought it'd be the same coming out of football, and quite quickly I realised you can't trust everyone, and there's people there to take advantage of you. You, you looked after in football very well, and you trust your teammates, and you trust each other. So for me, it was a big learning curve to be in the real world. Were there friends that you maybe lost that, you know, before a game would always be texting you and, and asking how things are and then once you're not kind of on that pedestal, aren't so interested, did you have to deal with that as well? Yeah, you, you realise you're real friends, without a doubt. Um, you know the ones that were just ringing you because they wanted some tickets. Um, yeah, but that, you know, you wheedle them quite quickly and, and I'd probably say I've got, you know, 10 really good friends now that I know I can trust and, and would always be there for me. Apart from that, they're just people that come along every now and again, you meet and, and you move on. But look, yeah, it was um, really, really difficult time. And, and, and as you say, I think you find out a lot about yourself. I think, first of all, for me, it was, it's, again, it was like learning how to behave as well. Because when I, when I was in that football environment, I said, talked about the nights out, I've given you some examples of those. I hate using the word banter because I don't like that word, but the, the kind of, team spirit and camaraderie we all had and the way that you'd go at each other in a changing room was relentless and I mean relentless it was it was it was awful at times but it was funny but you had to kind of be part of that to, to be part of the group and, and stick up for yourself and succeed so then when I came out of that I would have groups of friends that I'd met in the school playground that I'd be friends with as well and I'd go out with them on a night out and that side of me would come out because I'm just on a night out. And that's how I knew to be. And I could see like deep intakes of breath and I'd say something. Now in a football change room, it'd be funny. But I, I, I kind of learned I probably had to temper my, my personality a little bit because that to them was a bit more shocking than it would have been if I was in a football changing room. So I had to learn to be a different person as well. So it was, it was almost, like I say, finding a completely new identity, finding you know, a completely different person to what I was when I was a footballer. Are any of that close circle of friends that you talk about now, that 10, or any of the next pros? Yeah, yeah, still. And actually, you know, I've, I've, I've probably become more friendly with Vex players who I haven't played with. Um, also, I'm still, look, I'm still great friends with Jamie Curitan and, and James Scowcroft. We played together in England 21s and things like that. And, and, and you know, Andy Johnson occasionally. And, you know, but, but now it's more like I play with you and I'm still good friends with you and I'm good friends with Dean Ashton, Hux. So it tends to be the group that live around here now. I guess because we, I don't know whether you migrate to the same area and have the same kind of beliefs when you, when you live in Norfolk, I don't know, but we all, we all get on really well as a group. You know, we, we socialise together. Um, Norwich is, and Norfolk is, is, I don't say very lucky, but they are very lucky to have the group of players that, that still live around here and want to be part of the football club and represent the football club. I think that's quite unique. Do you have much interaction with the current players? Because obviously you're at Carrow Road loads with the work you do and also as your hobby, I guess, as well. Do you kind of feel that you've mentored any players coming through? Actually, yeah. So I, I've, you know, I, I, I've sort of chatted to Todd occasionally and, and, and some of the younger lads. Um, I think it's, 
I know when I was playing, you're, you're very wary of anybody outside the circle. So I, I know that, but I think the work I've done with the current players, um, they open up to me a lot more than they would do to maybe other people because they, they understand that I understand it and they know where I'm coming from because I know I've been there. So, and I think the current group of lads they've got as well are very much respectful like that. And I went up recently to do some shirt presentations for people who've had so many appearances and things like that, which again is a, is a great thing the club do. And, and you can see the boys are really respectful of that, you know, which I think in my day, the lads probably wouldn't have been quite so respectful. They probably would have mugged them off a little bit. Whereas the lads now, I think, are great. You know, they're really engaging in it. I think they appreciate it. Um, and, yeah, I think that they're striving to be, they want to be us. You know, those lads in there want to be remembered like we are. You know, as a, as a footballer, you can have a career and you can earn money out of it. But ultimately, I think you want to be remembered for a period of time, you know, as, as, as someone that played well for your football club. You know, I think the worst thing would be to play for 10 different clubs and not really be remembered that well by any of them. You know, I'd rather have one club and be remembered well by that one um, because, you know, I think everybody wants to be liked. And, and I think if you can have a good period at a club and, and do that, that's just part of my personality. I guess I've always been a people pleaser. Um, and I think, yeah, I think you always naturally migrate back to somewhere you've, you've had success. What are your impressions of the club now in terms of the direction it's heading? I don't know how well you know Stuart <laughs> Webber, Daniel Farker and, and other staff up at, at Colney. What, what, what are your impressions of the vision and, and what's going on and what's been happening this season? Uh, it's, it's massively impressive. And I think um, I've been lucky enough to have an insight into it. Yeah, obviously, I know Stuart really well and, and Daniel. Many times I've, I've spoken to Daniel in interviews and, and talked to Daniel privately. Just, I think the way the football club is doing things at the moment is, is perfectly right for the situation they're in. I, I can't, you can't fault anything. I think... I mean, take the off-pitch you know, off stuff, for instance, they do with, as I said, engaging with, with brands and things that are they're not the norm, the way they engage in the LGBT community and, and, the, and the Community Sports Foundation. They're, they're, there's not another club in the country that has a charity network like, like Norwich does. It's, it's phenomenal with the nest and everything they built as well. It's just amazing. So it's, it's a very special football club. It's a very unique football club. And I think Stuart Webber understands that. I think he gets that. Daniel Farker gets that. I think the way they're doing things, they've been burnt in the past with trying to do things too quickly. And I think the way football has changed, they're going about things the right way for Norwich City Football Club. You know, as a fan, it doesn't happen quick enough because you want success and you want to be in the Premier League and you want to stay in the Premier League. But it's such a difficult step to make. It's so difficult now because anybody who's only decent, you know, you'd have to have two or three really good seasons previously to be able to get a move. You, don't, you can have six months now and you're gone. And those players tend to stock up in the Premier League. So when you step up into that, the, the golf is, is huge from the Premier League to the Championship. So it's very difficult to make that transition. But the, the way the football club go about it, and I think they understand that, it's a learning curve for everybody. For Daniel, you know, he's, that was his first Premier League season last season. Um, for Stuart Webber, he's, he's got experience with that and, and he's learning all the time. And I think the one thing is they're very honest with us, which I think fans like. People listen to honesty and, and they're very honest and say when they make mistakes, when they think they can improve and what their vision is and how they're going to do things. That doesn't mean it's going to succeed, but I think we all buy into it because we understand where the football club is going and why it's taken that route. And I think that is, is honourable. And I think um, people buy into that. And when mistakes happen, people are a lot more forgiving because um, they understand the route the football club is taking. And I, and I think it's great. I think it's still going to be a, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident Norwich is going to get promoted back to the Premier League. Am I confident they're going to stay there? It's going to take a lot. You know, I spoke about this a lot and, and people ask me all the time, 
still think they're they're way shy of of staying in the Premier League. Not because of their technical ability. I just think sometimes it takes a different type of player to stay in the Premier League for that first season. I look at the Leeds United, I look at Sheffield United, how they've done it. They, they've got some really aggressive players, really aggressive players that just kind of fire through games and battle through games. You know, we've got technically really good players, but I think we're probably short of maybe three or four, maybe five players in that squad that have got that that kind of, it's not to say fight, because those boys have got fight, but there's a different type of mentality. So I think we need to get that. But I think the club are aware of it, and I'm, I'm sure they're, they're targeting those type of players. With all that in mind then, Darren, how exciting a time is it right now to be a Norwich fan? Love it, love it. To, look, to, to, to be a fan, I mean, I, I get so frustrated with Norwich fans sometimes about this whole mentality of they like being in the championship because they win games. And, I, and it winds me up so much because it's just my mentality. I want to play at the highest level I can. I want to watch, I want to watch Norwich play at the highest level they can. You, know, you tell me beating Man City last season wasn't one of the most memorable games you're going to have to probably really get to the end of it. But you, you know, you'll forget about that. You'll remember that game against Man City. So, and for me, it's not just about watching Norwich play. When, when I go as a fan to Carrow Road, I want to see the best players in the world play at Carrow Road. But then I've been spoiled from doing that against Bayern Munich. You know, I've experienced that. I've experienced playing men in Milan for Norwich. So I want that at Carrow Road. I want to see the best players there, not just for Norwich. I want to see the best players in the world playing at Carrow Road, whether that's with, with Norwich or without them. So, you know, with a lose or draw, I want to be in the Premier League. Do you think then, uh, we've had some comments recently in the media, uh, about what's the point? What's the point of going up to the Premier League if we're just going to come straight back down again? You know who I'm talking about. And uh, I actually, I thought the Pink in, uh, I saw an interview recently, they, they handled it really well. Actually, I thought they got the point across well. But there is obviously a point to getting promoted because, as you said, we'll have some of the best players in the world come to Carrow Road. And the aim and objective is to have that more and more over, over the next, you know, however long a period. Yeah, first thing I would say is you have to kind of take it uh, who makes those comments. You know, Sav is a good friend of mine. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with him at Leicester. Um, but he is uh, sometimes says things for effect, I would say, to, to cause a bit of a stir. And I think he, he did that. Um, I don't think he means it. You know, Robbie, Robbie's a, Robbie's got his persona about him. And actually, he's, he's, a, he's a kind, caring lad. Um, probably one of the most insecure people I've ever met in my life. But he has this persona. You know, I remember when he was, when he was doing Strictly, he was ringing me up and asking, should, should I do it? I, I don't know. And I'm like, well, whatever. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you whether you should do Strictly then come down to him or not. It's up to you. So he's, he's very much, you know, he cares. But I think he's, he's been very clever in his football career with building the persona of himself to have the career he had. And he's finding a way in the media to, to do the same thing. Um, and I think it's an emotive subject. He knows he's going to get people's backs up. But I take it as a pinch of salt. You know, I, I, Robbie will quite happily travel the same sort of distances to go and watch a, another team in South Wales or, you know, abroad. That's no difference. But because it's Norwich, he thinks, you know, little old Norwich, why should they be in the Premier League? Well, Robbie, you know, Norwich has probably been in the Premier League more years than he has. There's so much talent in this current Norwich squad. And sometimes it's easier, easier, I guess, for people outside of Norwich not to maybe focus on all of that. Well, exactly. And look, Norwich has produced players for some of the clubs Robbie's played for at the Premier League. James Madison's another one. You know, you look, he's played at Leicester. Robbie had a lot of years at Leicester with me. And, and you know, Norwich has a rich history of producing players that then go on to, to bigger and better things. So there's always a place for, for a team like Norwich. Of course, we want to be in the Premier League, we want to be a regular in the Premier League. And I believe that will come back at, at some point. But 
disregard them because of the location is just a, it's just a nonsensical thing to say. It's just, I mean, it's just an, a throwaway comment that was trying to get a reaction and it got it. But, you know, sometimes he's an idiot uh, and he says idiotic things um, and he knows that. But, you know, Norwich is, is a fantastic place and, and, you know, as a player, I lived in Norwich and I travelled all over the country to play football and I think it's disrespectful not only to Norwich as a, as a football club, it's disrespectful to the fans, it's disrespectful to the people of Norwich, it's disrespectful to the club. It's just, it's just a disrespectful thing to say and I don't think he meant it. I honestly don't. I think he just wanted to be challenged. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll let him off. We'll, we'll say, we'll take it with a pinch of salt. We'll click yeah. it up and send it to him and see what he has to say there. <laughs> Yeah. But Darren, on that note, you've just touched there on what makes Norwich so incredible. But what makes the club so special to you, and where do you hold it in your heart? Um, well, it's always going to be a part of me. It was, it was the club that gave me my opportunity to, to do the job I loved um, at such a young age, and and I'll, I'll be ever forever grateful for that. And not just only that, but, you know, the, the care and attention from the owners. I think it's a unique football club where. You know, there's not many owners that actively, there's not many owners that make people's wedding cakes. <laughs> that, that kind of sums it up for me. Was it tasty though? Is it proper fruit cake? So it was, it was delicious, yeah. It was, um, look, it's, that kind of relationship, I think, between the, the, the people who run the football club and the people who are players to the staff, to the, to the backroom staff, to the fans. It's just a unique football club, um, and you, you get that a lot at, at, um, at kind of non-league level. You know that everybody knows everybody, but it's very unusual to get it at such a big football club that's been in the Premier League. That you still get that same type of feeling, and and saying it's not all about the on-field stuff for me. It's, it's the stuff they do off-field. As I said, the Community Sports Foundation, what they do is is is, is unbelievably good. Um, the the way Norwich mixed with the LBGT community, the way they the way they go about mixing the different types of partnerships, draw awareness around mental health. Everything Norwich does has got a motive behind it for, for change and for different reasons. Um, and that to me is a special football club. They don't just take the easy route of getting a sponsor that is just going to bring the money in. They want to know the value behind it of what message they can send as well. So for me, that's what Norwich does best is, is being different and being unique. Absolutely. And long may that continue. Darren, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been so good to talk to you today and hopefully see you at Carroll Road in the flesh sometime very soon. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. Cheers, Darren. Thank you very much. Oh, man. Thanks, Dan. Well, Dan, as ever, open and honest from Darren. Great to hear his tales of life before Norwich and obviously his playing days and then his retirement and just really open chat there. I think we're really lucky as Norwich fans to have people like Darren that want to stay so connected with the club after leaving and then coming back. Yeah, he's part of a real group of ex-players that really did connect with the place and still do and love being around. Um, I'm not sure Jamie Curtin will thank him for some of the stories and perhaps Robbie Savage might have a few words as well. Um, but, but yeah, no, it was great to spend some time with him. Make sure you subscribe if you want more podcasts like that. We're on Spotify, Apple and YouTube. Just search All In Yellow. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.